You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is, by my count, episode 34. You'll notice there is not a decimal place, even though we promised there would be. That's because Nathan Gilmore has decided to grace us with his presence after all. and thus uh, Huzzah! Thus making the interruption in our uh, music trilogy completely unnecessary. I am your host this week, Michael Farmer. I am a... Uh, Adjunct Instructor of Developmental Reading and Writing at Tallahassee Community College. Glad to be here. Joining me as, uh, as usual, Nathan Gilmore, who is a Assistant Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How you doing, Nathan? Doing all right. Found out yesterday that my meeting got canceled, so here I am. A meeting getting canceled is always a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also joining us, David Grubbs, who is a Graduate Instructor of English at the University of Georgia. Still displaced, David? Uh, still displaced and recording this week from uh, again from Dr. Evans' office. So, yeah, Ritzy. Uh, our special guest this week is an old friend of mine, Carla Ewert. She uh, she and I both attended the University of Nebraska at Omaha uh, graduate program a few a few years ago, and now she teaches freshman composition at Collin County Community College in in uh, Mc, is it Mc, McKinney? McKinney, yeah, McKinney, Mc, Texas. McKinney, Texas. <laughs> yep. It's nice uh, nice of you to join us today, Carla. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And our topic this week, um, and we'll talk about this in a, in a few minutes, but our topic this week is is Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. Carla just com- completed a, her master's thesis on that on that book, so that's why she's joining us. Plus, it's always nice to have a woman on the show. <laughs> yeah. Change of pace a little bit. And also, you know, at least our, our listeners will be able to tell... Uh, which one is, is not like the other ones? I, I, I'm, I always wonder if they can tell our voices apart. They'll at least know you. First, before we get into the topic, though, Nathan, what's on the blog this week? Well, the Bible posts are still rolling. Uh, and this week, uh, in response to some recent stories about cheating in academia, uh, I have attempted a little essay response to some of the back and forth and tried to situate it within intellectual history. Exciting stuff. Now we don't, um, we we can't talk about any feedback we might have gotten because we're actually recording this the Wednesday before it comes out. So uh, there's a peek into the inner workings of uh, of the show. But if we if you sent us an email last week, we haven't gotten it yet because it's still last week. Well, actually, um, I saw that on the blog someone had noticed a a. a a post that I'd written very, very soon after we made the blog, uh, a post way in the way back where I wrote about uh, Arthurian grail romances. And apparently someone read it and enjoyed it, but uh, his moniker is the Grail King. So apparently the Grail King approves of my blog post about grail romances. So Try to I'm find flattered. a higher, uh, higher uh, power than that. <laughs> Higher authority, I guess, is what Ex- I was looking for. Exactly. The Gra- if the Grail King likes what I have to say about the Grail, then then by gum, that's enough for me. 
All right. Or well, something. <laughs> let's go ahead and get into the uh, the Fairy Queen. Um, before we start talking about the text itself, it's probably going to be necessary or at least helpful to give a little bit of background. The Fairy Queen is one of the great works of English literature, but it's substantially less read than the other contenders for that trophy. Uh, far fewer people read it than Paradise Lost, and, and of course far, far fewer people read it than the plays of Shakespeare. David, can you tell our listeners what they need to know about Edmund Spencer and the Fairy Queen? Um, well, uh, I think sometimes, uh, at least I, I know that I was uh, first, when I first encountered the Fairy Queen in a in a serious way in graduate school, uh, I was a bit surprised by Sp- Edmund Spencer's background, which is, uh, e- even though he was born and he was English by birth, he spent a basically the, the the bulk of his adult life in uh, in Ireland um, as a as as part of the English uh, the English colonies that were in in Ireland uh, the plantations as they called them um, and so I, I'd always assumed that Edmund Spencer was some tightly integrated member of of Elizabeth the first's court which apparently was not the case but he wanted it to be so. And so he used his connections with uh, with Walter Raleigh, also uh, who was also working a plantation in in Ireland, um, to try to to get in uh, to the uh, get into court. And the Fairy Queen, uh, which is basically a, a massive epic that orbits around the poetic double of Elizabeth herself, the Fairy Queen Gloriana. Of the title, um, that that was his his way of of trying to to get in on the inside. Um, so yeah, the the that that's who wrote it, and that's the uh, one of the main purposes of the text in in terms of the effect he wanted it to have on his life. Nathan, do you have anything to add to that? The only thing that I'd add to what David said is that this is not a poem that was composed all in one throw by any means. Uh, the first three books and the fourth book through the sixth book uh, were published years apart from each other. Uh, And so critics Mm. have been able to make some significant hay of the disillusionment that appears to animate the second half and the optimism that animates the first half. So, I mean, this is definitely a poem that not only has its historical context, but that has its own history. Carla, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mm. but I believe... um... I believe the uh, the poem was meant to be about four times the size it turned out. I, I'm i not sure that it meant, was meant to be that long, but it certainly is unfinished. I'm not sure how much he left off, um, but yeah, he did not finish it. So yeah, that's worth yeah, saying if, in, if, in the perspective of the different, the history of the piece, yeah. Right, if we believe him in his letter to Raleigh, the uh, the first part was supposed to be 12 books discussing and I'm probably going to get this wrong, personal virtue, and then there was supposed to be a second part of 12 books discussing civic virtue. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Michael, I've also heard the four times as long story. And, along the I way. mean, the, the virtues he picked, he claimed to have gotten from Aristotle, but of course they don't actually come from Aristotle, so God knows where he really got them. But we've got the background out of the way for the most part, so let's talk about why Carla's here. Um, as we said, you, you just recently, uh, completed your master's thesis on on the book. Can you uh, give us the broad strokes of your argument? My thesis actually looks at female disappointment in early modern literature, um, and Britomart was indeed the impetus for the whole 
the whole theory of female disappointment for me. Um, though I only focus on her in chapter one, the rest of it, um, chapter two is looks at Shakespeare's Desdemona and chapter three at Milton's Eve. Um, but anyway, back to Britomart. Um, and just to clarify Britomart to give you a little background on who I, who Britomart is, she is the Knight of Chastity and her story appears in books three and five of the Fairy Queen. Um, and she is the only female knight that Spencer has put in the, in the completed part of the poem. Um, she's not the only female warrior. She is the only female knight. Um, and the first time that I read Britomart's story, I was both enthralled and heartbroken by her. Um, she's fascinating to me as a female character because um, she fills all kinds of roles throughout the poem. She's a daughter, a knight, a prophesied bride and matriarch, and she's even called a goddess. But to me, she never seems to find personal satisfaction in the poem. Um, uh, her last spoken words, actually, in the poem, which she speaks right after rescuing her husband-to-be, are, um, then farewell, fleshly force. I see thy pride is not. Um, and at that point, when I read that, I remember the first time I read that, and I just thought, oh, my heart just broke. <laughs> because she's been sort of, she's been thoroughly disappointed by her husband at this point, um, though you could argue that her reasons for that disappointment are somewhat complex. Um, and now she's turning back, she's turning against her role as a knight. She's letting go of that role as well and seems disappointed in it. And so both of her sort of primary roles in life, she seems to have not been satisfied by. Um, so reading her as a as less an allegorical figure and more as a character, I find her story is really one of disappointment and disillusionment. Um, so she kind of got me thinking about that. Like, why, why is she so disappointed when she gets to do so many things, you know, as a woman? Mm -hmm. Um, and I began to ask myself that. Why does she struggle with this heavy disappointment? And as I continued my studies, I encountered other female, you know, early modern female characters who seem to have a similar sort of disoriented approach to satisfaction, like they're not sure how to go about getting to it. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, yeah. And then I, re I read yep. a book. I read Maurice Blanchot, he's a French theorist, and I read his book, The Writing of the Disaster. And in it, Blanchot argues... Um, about the unspeakable disaster, he discusses the unspeakable disaster and says that the unspeakable disaster is the threat of providential abandonment. Um, and he implies that the disaster is not experiential, but is existential, meaning that, you know, it's not something where you are just disappointed in your experiences, but it's actually an existential um, sense of disorientation. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. Likewise, I felt that female disappointment has little to do with experience. As Britomart, you know, demonstrates, she has all kinds of various exper experiences, but she doesn't find satisfaction through those. Um, and uh, and she's instead, she's disappointed in her existence. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, so as I started to think about that, I, I was actually, it, when I got to studying Milton and Eve, um, and Milton writes a lot about, um, he actually presents Eve all the time as being created for and from Adam and being there in the garden for Adam's sake and, and that Adam is constantly the voice of God to Eve rather than Eve having any kind of a direct link to God. And I got back to looking at all of the other female characters that I'd, I'd experienced and realized that the patriarchy acted as that same block between women and providence in all of these pieces and Britomart as much as anybody. Um, so that's kind of what my thesis discusses. Um, but there's this whole, there's a whole, <laughs> I mean, there's a whole just, um, as Brit, with Britomart, I mean, destiny is sort of the main theme of her book and not the main theme. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of themes, but destiny is a, is a theme that runs throughout her book, right? She's assigned a destiny of, of knighthood. She's assigned matriarchy and all of these things, but she never actually gets to connect with that destiny. She's constantly looking for voices mm -hmm. outside of herself 
to assign her a destiny. Um, so anyway, as you, as you watch her progression from the articulation of her destiny to its implementation, it becomes clear that she really does perceive this separation from divinity um, and that she really believes that, that is, is, she experiences that. Um, and so that's sort of the, the broad strokes of my argument. There's a lot to it, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's where I, where I start. It sounds both interesting and above my head. <laughs> Not so. Uh, um, <laughs> as as most things with Spencer do. I was just Carla and I first I, I believe first read the Fairy Queen together in in a class at graduate school and I, comparing her reactions to that book it broke your heart you felt for this character. My reaction was when is this semester going to be over and what on earth am I going to write about? <laughs> but um, since your work Aww. deals so heavily with Britta Martin since the only paper I've ever read written on the fairy queen is also about book three uh let's spend some time there she is often singled out as an early feminist in english literature um to what extent do you think is that reputation deserved and from a feminist standpoint how is her character admirable or problematic okay um, yeah, no, I, I can, it, it makes good sense why Britta Mart is seen as sort of the first feminist character. Um, that said, I would say that Britta Mart herself doesn't ne necessarily, I mean, obviously she doesn't, she's a character, but that Britta Mart doesn't necessarily stand for these issues that she's come to, that she's come to be aligned with. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. I think she actually misrecognizes the problem. She, she comes, she continually blames her femininity for the separation from Providence rather than recognizing a problem with the system. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, but she, she is, let me, let me kind of work this through here. Um, she actually, she actually aligns herself with patriarchy most of the time and is constantly trying to, even by performing as a knight and by, um, by, sort of rejecting her female body she's always aligning herself with the patriarchy and trying to get herself to fit into that system and the whole time there's something intuitive in her that's saying i'm not sure that it's true i'm not sure that it's true and she fights against it but then she has to constantly perform this agreement with the patriarchy so um and she does that she does it when she um rejects her physical body and her you know at isis church there's a real sense of at the isis church episode where when she has her vision she's actually called out of her physical body her female body and she sees her vision in her heavenly spirit but then when she's rehoused in her female body she struggles again with the same dismay she struggled with throughout the poem and she goes to the male priests at isis church to ask for guidance and they set her right back on her same track she goes and she battles radigand and there is all kinds of um anti-female body <laughs> um, implications to their battle where they're where they're hewing their dainty parts and they're hating their 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 female bodies and then from there after she defeats radigan she goes and finds her husband to be dressed as a woman which she finds is an is an unforgivable offense that he's dressed as a woman which is just a, it's fascinating even though she's dressed as a man yeah there which is you know <laughs> it's actually really interesting though that um there, there was a tendency for women in the early modern period because it was seen because being a woman was seen as somehow a, a, a detriment to your connection with divinity. Even female mystics often talked to the, talked to themselves as female or as male in spirit, female in body, but male in spirit. And that's why they were able to connect directly to God. Um, and even Queen Elizabeth, she spoke often in her inner speeches of being, yes, she's a queen, but her spirit is male. Her, in her spirit, she's a king. And that's how, that's why she can be a monarch. That's why she can be seen as directly connected to divinity where women. So, I mean, Elizabeth and, and Britta Mart do this similar thing where they set themselves apart from other women 
in a sense by by aligning themselves in some way with with divinity at the end of Britomart's story she's called a goddess but she goes right back and she puts she real she realigns the hierarchy and puts men back on top puts article in charge of of the city that Radigan had ruled and and that's and and she does that by setting her so she gives herself the power to do that by setting herself apart from all the other women does that make sense and in some ways Elizabeth did the same thing she she framed herself as a man in spirit and therefore while she was an, an amazing queen and able to bring uh to create dialogue over what women were capable of, she also was not helpful to the whole debate by setting herself apart from the common woman. Does that make sense? Is so is there is the case for Britomart's being a feminist built on anything other than that she is performing what's traditionally a man's role? I that that would be my perspective. I mean it's a complex obviously a complex complex debate. But my perspective is that yes, most of most of the discussion of Britomart as a feminist would come from there. So let's um, think of her as the Ally McBeal of the of the sixteenth century. She's doing a man's job, but she still has every negative stereotype about women. <laughs> it seems that way. It seems that way. But I, I mean I think what what's interesting about all of that is that, that the fact that she's disappointed reveals that there she has some sort of in, an intuition into the problem, that she strives with the problem indicates that she has some sort of issue with what she's being told that she sees of herself that she could be connected to, to divinity without being a man but yet she's still told that she needs him she needs the male approval to sort of create her destiny her destiny is inevitably mm -hmm. linked to a male does that make sense yeah does um your your examination of her character did um did you work with with Britomart's character in adjunct with Bradamant, the um, Ariosto's character, his his woman knight that she's I kind of modeled not. on? Yeah, no, okay. I I of course read a lot of criticism about that. I didn't actually deal with it very mm -hmm. much, huh? So I mean, okay. I because I was dealing with three pieces, I didn't spend a lot of time going yeah. historically deep into any of them. But, That's yeah. the advantage sure, sure. to uh, to having the uh, shotgun. Uh, thesis. <laughs> Mine is too. It, it does mean you don't have to go quite as deep. I will say. I will say one thing about Bradamant, and I think it it does fit with what you're saying, Carla, because she is uh, even even though she's a woman knight in uh, Orlando Furioso, her she is she does have all of the the negative stereotypes of 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 womanhood. She's very passionate. She's very flighty. Um, the implication is that even though she defeats all of these male knights, it's because she's cheating. <laughs> mm. She has she has magical weapons. Mm -hmm. um, as does Britomart. So. so, right. Well, yeah. As as does Britomart. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there there is this. Uh, you know, even even in that that character archetype in the Italian epic, um, that there's still something unsatisfying about about the relationship of. Britomart's femininity with her identity as a knight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Well, I mean, yeah, and my 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 argument about that is that the reason that she doesn't find satisfaction in that is because she's never allowed to embrace it as her own as her own destiny. It's a destiny that's constantly imposed on her from the outside. So for Britomart, um, she doesn't get to create a destiny that's female-centered because everything. So so it can't be reciprocally fulfilling. Does that make sense? I mean, it seems like destiny. Mm -hmm. 
in as much as it's a connection between your inner voice and a divine voice, right? It's that connection between those two things. It becomes a reciprocally fulfilling thing, right? Where, where divinity, mm-hmm. you have some purpose for divinity and at the same time it fulfills some deep purpose in yourself. And, and if it doesn't come from that deep place, if there's not a direct connection, what, what my argument is, if, if there's not, and, and fascinatingly, Maurice Blaine shows us exactly the same thing, that there's an inauthentic experience when you're separated, when there's a, when there's a perceived separation from divinity, um, you know, that there's an inauthentic, there's an inauthenticity to an experience um, that, that Britomart was never able to create a reciprocally fulfilling destiny because she didn't get to take ownership of that ever. It was always imposed from the outside. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. But as far as Spencer goes, as far as him making her, whether he intended for her to be some sort of a feminist symbol, um, I don't know that he intended that. I mean, obviously, we can't argue what he intended, but I, I think that what he did with her is so fascinating because he, he really literally packed her experience with all of the possible cultural ideal ideals that were available at the time. She was both a virgin mm-hmm. and a potential bride. She was um, a maiden. She was a warrior. She was all of these things. And he still allowed her to be disappointed in my view. Um, and he kind of implies that none of these are satisfactory when they're imposed from the outside, like I said. So I think the problem that, that Spencer explores and exposes through Britomart is not so much whether a woman should be any one of these things but it's that her destiny is chosen for her outside of herself that culture actually assigns a female destiny rather than her being free to choose her own um and he writes of britomart who who she can't attain fulfillment because she's constantly asked to relinquish opportunities to define herself and defer instead to culture um and i think that it seems that spencer intuits sort of the complexity of the dilemma facing women in a patriarchal culture and he he um he um writes a Britomart who's who becomes an embodied paradox you know she's a she's a paradox that exposes this frailty um that I don't think is a frailty of of womanhood but I think it's a frailty of the debate over their status and I think Spencer sheds real light on that through Britomart um and while while we tend to analyze her to better understand where Spencer falls in the debate of gender theory um I would argue that he critiques the debate itself that he's actually critiquing that this debate it puts women in a position where they can't that they are constantly being debated and re- rewritten and re- reassigned and re- all of these things, um, we can't self-define and therefore we're cut off from ourselves and, and destined for disappointment. Uh, Carla, I think all of this it resonates with a lot of other things going on uh, in this period. And I mean, it resonates with the questions that I'm digging into in my own dissertation because the questions that you're posing about women's place, I think resonates with the same questions in the period about the place of lay people in general. And, you know, this idea that women's relationship to the divine within a Protestant system is mediated through marriage, I think is one of those grand paradoxes of the period where you've got this large debate over sacramentality in general, uh, where, you know, there are certainly radical elements, Anabaptist elements, certain fringe Protestant groups in Britain, uh, who are wanting to say that, you know, there is no mediation between the individual and God. Uh, and then on the other hand, you know, this sort of Anglo-Catholic tendency, I realize that's an, ac- an anachronistic term, uh, but this Anglo-Catholic tendency to say, no, uh, there are still certain earthbound structures and sacramental mediations between anyone and God. And I think that that, you know, I, from what I hear of what you're saying, I mean, that's definitely playing out. Uh, in this grand struggle over the sacramentality of marriage. Because, you know, if you think about the history of this, uh, groups like the Quakers, 
groups like the levelers, uh, which tend to diminish most radically the place of the sacraments in the Christian life, are the same ones who you know, raise up the earliest women preachers, public women preachers anyway. So, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, the critical questions uh, regarding women and the critical questions regarding the theology of the sacraments are definitely coming together in this period in very interesting ways. Very much. And that, that chapter three of my thesis looks at Milton, and he is really a struggle in this area because he is, you know, as a as a Puritan, right, he's kind of thrown off the whole idea of there being importance in the sacraments. And he talks all the time in most in many of his writings about individual freedom. And yet he still writes this an Eve that's completely that doesn't get to experience any of that. He still writes Eve as completely uh, encompassed by this hierarchy, right? She's completely uh, defined by it. And um, I, you know, talk a little bit in that third chapter about the Quakers and how he had all kinds of examples around him of people who had gone far enough to say that even gender hierarchies were not, uh, were not valid in the spirit in a sense. I don't know if that makes sense, but he, but he, yet, yet he kind of refused to give Eve that same freedom and um, comes to a point where, where her fall becomes inevitable because she was never allowed paradise to begin with. And the only way for her to connect to divinity was to fall and to prove to prove that the responsibility for the relationship between humanity and divinity is the is divinity's position. It's his responsibility. It's divinity's responsibility. I don't want to say his. It's divinity's responsibility. The, the relationship between humanity and divinity is divinity's responsibility. And the only way for that to be flushed out in, in Paradise Lost was for both Adam and Eve to fall. So Eve falls in order to create some kind of a connection between herself and divinity, which, by the way, in the in the poem is the only time that, that God directs her addressly is when Jesus, or when God comes down to the garden and says, and it's actually the Son of God at that point, I don't know if they call him Jesus, but when, when the Son of God right, comes down right. to the garden and corrects her is the first time in the poem that he directly addresses her, rather than getting his voice to her through Adam. It's the first time he addresses her. And then, right. and then when Adam falls, it's the only way I could see that. I kept thinking, how do you see this? I, this is not all going to pertain. I know I'm just rambling, but, but the, the only way I could see his fall is something that was, because, you know, you have the whole idea of the fortunate fall that Boethius writes about, right? And I think he's in sixth century or something that Boethius writes. Mm-hmm. And Indeed. he writes about the fortunate fall and how when some when someone falls, it's a good thing in some ways because it takes them from a place of sort of um, performing something into a place of reality. And I couldn't argue that for Adam, right? Because he was perfect. He was perfect. So no fall could have been fortunate. But the one thing that was fortunate about it is that what it did, and Maurice Blanchot in his theory talks a lot about the responsibility of the created being, that there that there is this inevitable responsibility placed on the created being just by being created. And the only thing that was positive then in Adam's fall was that he was able to toss that responsibility back onto the creator rather than keeping it on the creature. Anyway, I'm really off on a tangent, but, um, that's how, that's how we roll around here though. (laughs) Good. So yeah, what you're saying, Nathan, (laughs) about this, this period and how these things were being fleshed out and when these things were, you know, when, when, why did Milton struggle so much with giving freedom to women when he believed so strongly in individual freedom? And in a sense, Eve becomes his, the place at which Milton fleshes out what freedom looks like. And he almost pitches like, um, predestination and Arminianism, the Calvinism and Arminianism against each other in debating Eve and watching her, watching freedom play out in her. And, and she becomes almost, almost, um, a symbol for the non-elect. She had no, she had no option, but to fall. She's almost a symbol of the non-elect. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating anyway. But there's nothing interesting about the Renaissance. (laughs) So, um, let's, let's be, (laughs) I, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, 
<laughs> no, that 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 has nothing to do with uh with you. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk practicality here. Most of our listeners, if they've encountered the Fairy Queen at all, um, probably didn't read book three. Um, they probably came across book one in some sort of English literature survey course. So, right, David, I want you to tell us about the uh, this most read section of the Fairy Queen. Um. Book one of the Fairy Queen, which I have in fact uh, worked through with my students in uh, my 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 Britlet survey this semester, focuses on the adventures of the Red Cross Knight, uh, who is the Knight of Holiness. Britomart is is the Knight of the, the Virtue of Chastity, uh, but Spencer uh, begins the book with the adventures of the Knight of Holiness. Um. The uh, the emphasis of book one is, I think, much more overtly, not just overtly moral, but I think much more overtly religious than uh, than the other books. In that it, it it's uh, it's concerned with which church are you part of, um, because they're they're uh, the whole Protestant versus Catholic thing is is a. Uh, um, well, it's 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 built into the plot. There's a, a character by the name of Duessa who is basically the Scarlet Woman of of the Book of Revelation, who uh, of course in the Reformation was um, seen as as an icon of of the Roman Catholic Church. And so this uh, this woman Duessa is constantly trying to lead the Red Cross Knight astray and separate him from. Uh, the the maiden who he's supposed to be escorting and remaining loyal to, which is the princess Una, um, who is who is the one true faith. And so uh, Red Cross Knight's adventures, uh, he finds you know lots of monsters and giants and um, snake women who have explosive toad babies, but uh, the real I think the real tension going on in in book one is uh, which woman is he going to go with? Is he going to be snookered by uh, the, the, false, uh, the false church, Duessa, or is he going to uh, remain true to uh, the, one, the, the, the one faith, um, the, which, uh, which is where he begins? He, he begins with her, but then is separated, and uh, yeah. It's uh, book one is not only a moral allegory; it's also an allegory of church history, uh, particularly of the history of the church in England itself. Um, it was thought in the Renaissance that there had been this time of, of kind of purity of the Christian religion back before the church became more officially Roman Catholic. Uh, they actually uh, looked at some old uh, old English sermons by. Uh, guys like Alfrich and claimed that the doctrine that they taught in those sermons was closer to the message of the Protestant faith than it was to the Catholic faith. And so they, they, they were trying to say that England was once more Protestant and then had been led astray by the Roman Catholic Church historically. Um, and, and also as a reference to Henry VIII, who, uh, for his opposition to Luther, was declared by the Pope the defender of the faith. And so, you know, this kind of corresponds to those moments in the story when Red Cross Knight is the defender of Duessa, 
but eventually um her her duplicity is revealed she's unmasked as a as an imposter and so he he is realigned with the one true faith so the other the other allegory you often you often find people reading into it anyway is uh is the book's very self-conscious status as a national epic for the british people so i, I believe saint george the, the patron saint of the british isles shows up at the at the beginning of the book but um the, the he whole... is in fact the red cross knight ah. <laughs> You can see you, you yeah. can see you can see what an expert I am. I did read it. Well, see that the problem is is that it's not revealed that he's that he's Saint George until almost the end of the book. So we right. don't we don't know he's Saint George yet because it's the story of how he becomes Saint George. Yeah. So, so um so so yeah there there's a there's a definite strain of national epic in the Fairy Queen and David yeah. since you're the closest thing this podcast has to a British person. Um, it's up to you to tell us how that works. Righto, Governor. Um, yeah, the the national epic. You've, I mean, you we've already started there by talking about uh, Saint George. Saint George is the patron saint of England. Um, Spencer pushes that one further by uh, telling the story of Saint George um, as if Saint George Saint George is not only personifying in some sense. Uh, the people of England as they decide which religious loyalties they have. What, where, where does our sectarian loyalty lie? Um, but he has also made himself English. When he's revealed to be St. George, uh, in the chapter where he is, he's identified as George, he's also identified as the son of Anglos, as the son of Saxons, which... Um, the the traditional Saint George, the historical Saint George, such as there is, um, is is a, is actually not affiliated with England at all, um, but uh, I believe Asian. So, uh, you know, Asia Minor, that kind of thing. So, Spencer changes Saint George into an Englishman, uh, but also, even even more properly, uh, the Fairy Queen herself the titular fairy queen is uh gloriana who is the the in book double of elizabeth the first herself and in fact if you uh the edition i have and i'm sure carla has too because we bought it for the same class has a picture of elizabeth the first on the cover right the yeah Hamilton the rainbow edition. portrait it's her I with the with the ships in the background um her hand on a globe i don't know which one it's labeled yeah, there, there's. Did you a just lot ask of... me what the name of the portrait was, David? <laughs> it's a... yes, yes, I did. That, there, there are a number of one. really. What portraits are called? Yeah, well, there, there are a number of really, really famous Elizabeth portraits. The one, the one that I know um, best is is the rainbow portrait. But um, anyway, Elizabeth is the center of this, and what he's done is he's written he's written elizabeth into the story of saint george by having her be the one who actually commissions saint george to go kill the dragon and save the princess and so actually become saint george um elizabeth has now become the the one who gets this this sort of national legend going even more importantly, we have this recurrent character named Prince Arthur, 
who, yes, is is King Arthur before he knows he's king. And what he seeks through the whole of the book is to find Gloriana herself, who is uh, the the perfection uh, or sorry the the personification of the glory of the throne. All right, she she is sovereignty. And Prince Arthur has seen her in a vision and fallen in love and his, is seeking her throughout, uh, throughout the realms of fairyland. And so now Elizabeth Tudor, whose family founded their claim to the throne on, well, not only, you know, tangential relation to uh, various Plantagenets, but also by tracing it back through the Welsh line of Owen Tudor to King Arthur himself. Well, now Spencer has made Elizabeth the motivation for King Arthur and the object, the object of King Arthur's quest. So, so Britain yeah. becomes a snake eating its own tail. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely that that you know everything begin everything in book one, and I think you know it can be argued for pretty much the Fairy Queen itself, but certainly in book one, everything begins and ends with the Fairy Queen. Um. Everything begins and ends and orbits around Elizabeth, who is this kind of unmoved center, um, right. which is, yeah. And if I could add to that, David, I mean, one of the things about a national epic is that the central anxieties of the empire uh, almost always surface. You know, in the Aeneid, it is, uh, will Aeneas's duty, his sense of duty, stay true uh, even as he faces lust and fear and all of these potential vices that might lead him astray from his destiny to be the founder of the Roman people. You know, you think about something mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, uh, Homer's version of Odysseus, you know, uh, again, you know, the question is, will he, will his wanderlust eventually be overcome by his desire to return to the homeland? Uh, and in, in Fairy Queen, you know, that central anxiety of England in the 16th century uh, which is to say, I mean, this massive influx of option, you know, do we become Catholic or Protestant? Do we become, do we become classical or Augustinian? Do we become uh, a nation governed by a woman or a, a nation governed by a man or a nation governed by a woman with a man's spirit or, you know, all of these <laughs> wild options? I mean, the fact that it is such a complex uh, and, you know, sometimes dizzying poem, I think, is not coincidental, but it is central to its identity as the national epic of England in the 16th century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I read book one at my Christian college as an undergraduate, but I never got beyond that until I got to graduate school and took Bob Darcy's Edmund Spencer class, uh, same, same as Carla. And I, I struggled a bit in this cla that class because the lens of interpretation that I had been given as an undergraduate wasn't accepted as particularly valid in graduate school. And I'm talking, of course, about the religiously allegorical readings of the Fairy Queen as opposed to, I think, the now more popular readings that would integrate more critical theory into, into the mix. Carla, can you talk for a few minutes about those two competing views of the epic? Okay. Um of course, my knowledge of the, of the Fairy Queen is really focused on Britomart, so I'll talk a little bit about how I feel about her as an alleg allegory versus as um, a more uh, theoretical uh, interpretations of her. Um, I find that reading her as an allegory leads to um, pretty conflicted interpretations. 
Um, she's the knight of chast chastity, and yet the poem writes of her that after her vic victory at the House of Bucerain, she's dismayed. Um, and so that kind of that kind of conflict, right? The reader would expect to expect her to be as the knight of chastity to be exhilarated or joyous after her victory over Amaret's captor and symbolically speaking over perverse love that opposes marital union right i mean as the knight of chastity marital union or um or um pure sexual you know pure sexuality virginity should be her her priority and yet when after she's conquered conquered this busserine who stands for sort of the antithesis of everything that she should be she's not excited and joyous she's dismayed she's overcome with this sense of despair um, as she watches his house with all of these beautiful images of love crumble she's dismayed um, and there are places like that throughout her story where you would think that she should be she should feel one way and and her emotional response is incongruent with her sort of symbolic persona and i guess i feel that that um, allegory sort of limits your reading of the work. I think both allegory and critical theory can shed light on the work, but I feel like if you're reading it as a strict allegory, it could cause you, it could cause one to overlook the abundance in the work, the, all of the different things that are there that are being said, uh, whether by Spencer or just, just as we come to it, you know, from, from our perspective at this point. So that's, that's my take on allegory. Okay. David, I suspect you're probably more into the allegory aspect. Do you want to defend that reading? <laughs> well, I th um, I think we have to start there because it, Raleigh or uh, Spencer's intentions, at least as he declares them in that letter, in that famous letter to Walter Raleigh, um, his intention is to construct an allegory for the purpose of fashioning a gentleman by showing him the development of virtues in action and by by pursuing and uncoding this allegory um we're we're meant to learn uh ourselves how to be how to be virtuous in the ways that uh, uh that the knights are learning how to be virtuous um so i think i think one has to one has to begin by looking at the story as it's told simply as a story and then by looking at it as 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 an allegory at its various various levels but um i agree with you carla that there certainly is a tension in the story between the stated purposes of the allegory and the behaviors of characters themselves mm -hmm. i think that's um, where yeah I think that's where allegory starts to get so slippery with with the fairy queen because, you know, none right. of his if he's if he's instructing gentlemen on how they should, you know, conduct their lives and learn these virtues. There's just so much mess, <laughs> you know, which I think is the fascinating part of the fairy queen that there's just so much there's so much um, tension in all of these characters and in the way that they embody their sort of persona or their virtue, and and I think that that that's that's appropriate in that there's a mess there's mess anytime you're trying to learn any sort of thing so maybe if he's trying to teach gentlemen how to be virtuous that makes sense but that said i think that that makes it a little tricky as an interpretive tool does that make sense I, yeah. i've got a question this this overflowing of meaning that you guys are talking about the, the that keeps you from reading it as a straight allegory when, when i think of that image i think of uh, moby dick which mm -hmm. which has an allegorical component to it, except that it's so muddled that nobody in history has ever been able to tell me what that allegory means. And, and the reason for that is that Melville was kind of a lousy writer who fell backwards into an awesome, awesome book. 
Do you think that's the case with Spencer as well? <laughs> is that he was seeking to write something, couldn't control it, and ended up writing something even better? I I would tend to think that a little bit. I I mean I think, yeah. I'm not sure that I can critique Spencer's ability as a writer very well from this perspective, but I do think that he was sort of existing in this incredibly complex state as we've already, this incredibly complex world where everything, like we said, like we've said was up in flux and everything had changed. And, and his piece, this poem inevitably shows that inevitably models for us that all of these things that we thought were so settled were less settled at at this point when he's writing. And then, you know, um, that's why I think the early modern period is so interesting, interesting for a postmodern, Anal- or a postmodern critic because we're sort of trying to figure out what the, what made up the modern period and as the early modern period contributes to that it was definitely a time when things were in flux so I think he did in some ways lose control of his piece and it became much more interesting because he did that I would agree with you well it's interesting Carla that you point to allegory as something that constrains meaning because I, I a book that I often refer to on the podcast is a uh, John Milbank's theology and social theory and one of the arguments that he makes that is that it's precisely in the moment of allegory that a surplus of meaning becomes even more possible and you know he actually points to the allegorical mode as something that modern theology ought to recover mm-hmm. uh, precisely because it is a moment where a more a less mediated presence of Christ is possible within the act of reading uh, so, I mean, it's interesting, I, you know, when I hear allegory, it's always filtered through John Milbank and the radical orthodox movement. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I can definitely see what you're saying, you know, if one thinks of allegory as this represents this and this represents this, and once you've mm-hmm. got your one-to-one chart with your two columns done, then you're done interpreting the poem, yeah. uh, that would seem just murderously oversimplifying when it comes to Spencer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, have you, have you ever, I mean, have you encountered any sort of post-enlightenment theories of, of allegory like that or you know is it pretty much the enlightenment critique of allegory that you're operating from wow i'm not even sure where to start there nathan okay <laughs> got, sorry <laughs> now you know how uh, we feel on the podcast when nathan asks a question i would love to sound smart in that case but i'm not sure that i can so let that go. Um, well, well, well if, let me if, let, if, let me try one more time. Yeah. Let me try one more time. I mean, the Enlightenment critique of allegory is that it is inventing material, trying to invent meaning out of thin air, uh, whereas the postmodern reappropriation of allegory says that that's precisely what reading is. Mm-hmm. It's taking a text and it is, you know imagining relationships and it's investigating relationships and it's drawing things together that aren't immediately obvious. Uh, and that's precisely what reading ought to be about and that it's the actual, uh, flight from allegory rather than the act of allegory itself. That's constraining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. I just hadn't, I didn't understand that historical sort of approach to allegory and that it differed there, but David it sounded like you had something to add. Didn't mean to interrupt. Well, uh, th- this is actually kind of funny because it loops back around to um, what I said earlier about that post about the Holy Grail. Um, that there's a mode of allegory that actually occurs in chivalric romance that is distinct from what we would see in something like uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, mm-hmm. which is which is so tightly constructed. Um, 
in in the grail romances we particularly the french ones we see knights engaging in actions that they are later told were allegorical but these are exactly the same knights that we have read about in other stories it's 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 gawain it's lancelot it's mm-hmm. uh, it's percival who have who've had other adventures that we can, that we can read in a, in a in a straight literal way but once the grail quest begins their actions begin to take on this deeper significance and they encounter hermits along the way who explain to them and when you rescued those maidens from that castle where they were being kept by those seven dark knights the dark knights represented the deadly sins and the maidens in the castle were the were were the souls of the blessed who are liberated when sin is is conquered um i wonder the degree to which spencer was looking looking to a looser kind of allegory and creating more realistic characters who are in the process of of not representing virtues but of becoming virtues oh interesting so so that you see this this tension as as the person as this very human type character has to wrestle with the kinds of struggles that we do um in dealing with those virtues um, I guess, they are not yet selves yeah. personifications. <laughs> I guess what I struggle with in that, especially, is that that it seems that that indicates that at some point there will be a point of arrival. So what I, what I'm saying there is it's it seems like if that's the case, if if Spencer's writing sort of a loose allegory in which the characters are becoming virtues rather than representing virtues, which I like that idea very much. But if that if that's true, it lacks a point of arrival. There's and and I I mean I guess this is a tension you feel I feel I personally feel in life sometimes is where is that point of arrival at which I've come to the place where I am, where I am in some way mm-hmm. an encompassing human being. Does that make sense? Um, no, oh, yeah. The, the afterlife. I I, assume, I mean I guess that's what we're supposed to believe, and I and I think I do. But that said. His his characters never come to a point of arrival, and there's some sense of of I, I guess the unfinished even the unfinished part of the the poem. So the, there's an unfinished quality to that mm-hmm. if that is if that was his intent. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you're right. And even even in book one of Red Cross Knight, he he does the Saint George thing. He kills the dragon. He wins the princess. He gets betrothed to the princess, but He's then he gets called along back the way. To- exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and then he gets <laughs> called back to Gloriana's court. He doesn't get his happy ending. And um, neither, you know, he finds out his pr- yeah. yeah. And that's that's where, Britomart. Yeah, that's what I feel with Britomart is that if she if she is the knight of chastity, we ought to the reader ought to at some point see her as the fulfilled um the fulfilled wife, right? At some point we ought to see her as a as the chaste and fulfilled wife and that is never the case. Um she's not fulfilled as a virgin, yep. she's not fulfilled as a wife. So she never gets her her point of arrival either. It just she just ends. It's very and, and, uh it's very right. existential in that way. I mean, you used yeah. that term earlier, but um when I think of when I think of eternal unfulfilledness even 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 when you do everything right. I mean, that's uh that's that's my uh, area of studies wheelhouse. Is that right. your bag? Although, I mean, uh, ju- just to just to pick on one word in there, Michael, it's not an eternal unfulfillment. It's true. I mean, it's a temporal. It is precisely a temporal, secular unfulfillment. And I mean, you know, really, I think that that is a very sophisticated way to allegorize, uh, for instance, what St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, that, you know, these things are sowed 
perishable, but they will be reaped imperishable. In other words, there's, there's always this pull uh, towards something higher, and there is precisely, Carla, a disappointment uh, that's always going to be inherent in the pursuit of virtue in this time between the times. So, you know, again, because I've, I've got, I'm always filtering allegory through Milbank, I think, wow, you know, this really is a very, very sophisticated theological allegory going on precisely for the reasons you're pointing to. And I, and I guess that's the reason, Michael, I, I don't think of the critical theory approach and the allegorical approach as two camps, you know, in pitched battle on a field, but rather uh, one is the extension of the other, yeah. uh, you know, in places where, you know, one of them is reaching for something, the other one suggests something towards which it might be reaching. The most recent issue of the uh, Christianity and Literature Journal is a special edition on Flannery O'Connor. Mm -hmm. And uh, it talks, several of the articles talk a lot about her anagogical vi uh, vision. And of course, an anagogy is the fourth level of allegory, according to... Um, According to the the Middle Ages, I suppose. Right. But Dante specifically. What it what it does what what her anagogy does is instead of representing something one to one, what it does is realigns you and points you toward um away from the temporal and toward the eternal, so that the eternal is in some sense literally present. I mean, it's very Eucharistic. It's very Catholic. It's very um foreign to our Protestant uh, Protestant attitudes toward these things. But that sounds a lot like what you guys are saying. Well, you, you used the word secular and in, in you were saying temporal and secular. Um, and I'm curious, I'm curious about that sort of sacred secular dichotomy that, that is implied. Oh, by that. okay. And I'm sorry. This is a bad habit of mine that David and Michael have gotten used to, but I always use secular in the Augustinian sense. Okay. Uh, it's not a separate realm of power away from the priestly realm or anything like that. Uh, seculum just refers to the span of time okay. between the, ascension of Christ and the return of Christ at the end of times. Yeah. Okay, so in so other words, while we are still living here in a world that is not God forsaken, but also is not uh, fully realized as the kingdom of God, that is the secular age. Okay. I see what yeah. you're saying. So it's not necessarily a separation within this age. It is the age itself. No. And, and again, that's a, that's a habit of thought that John Milbank taught me. He, he, he really is one of those cats who just rewires your brain and I'm, ruined forever well that noise means it's time for the lightning round we uh -oh. have just skimmed the surface of a very long and very complex book i'm not really sure we can even say that we've skimmed the surface we've talked about far less than a third of it so uh, i will give each of you 60 seconds to tell tell our listeners what other sections of the fairy queen are worth their attention nathan you go first 60 seconds all right, book two, we've got The Adventure of Sir Guyon, and he discovers that the contours of classic virtue, where you're trying to drive out chaos in order to instore order, to instill order, ultimately are inadequate to human virtue, because when he destroys the bower of bliss, the den of Acrasia, uh, the embodiment of disorder and unrule, uh, he discovers that the only way he's able to do that is actually by losing control of himself, it's only through divine grace that virtue is possible. Go, David. That was only 30 <clears throat> seconds. You've still got some time, Nathan. Oh, you're, well, you're grunting at me like I was running out of time. <laughs> All right. Uh, to add to that, uh, book five, uh, we've got the character Talus, 
uh, who's paired with Artigal, and he's something like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2. He, has <laughs> he is Iron Man. He, is, he has unstoppable physical force, but no sense of mercy, and Artigal must team with him in order to, to form true justice by the conjunction of unstoppable justified physical force and the wisdom that comes through the mercy of God. How's that, Michael? There you go. David, you got um, one minute. All right. Uh, false floor mill and book threes and, and books three and four. The amazing alchemical fimbot who simulates all of the wonders <laughs> of a uh, of of a courtly romance damsel in distress and manages to lead basically every knight in the kingdom around by the nose and eventually melts before her before our eyes like Terminator Two when uh, her. Her fraudulent nature is exposed. Um, and, well, Nathan already got the other robot, but uh, my favorite moment in book two is uh, poor Pyrocles, the immoderate raging knight who actually catches fire and has to sprint to the ocean and jump in screaming, I'm on fire, I'm on fire, because he just can't control his anger. Good times. Yeah. Carla? <laughs> um, I'm probably less prepared for this than y'all were, but... Um... I think one of the fascinating things is when Chris, I think this is in book three, some, or somewhere in book three, or perhaps book two, um, where Chris Sogany, I don't know if I'm saying that right, is impregnated by the sun and has the twins Belphoebe and Amoret. Um, and yes. Belphoebe turns into this um, Amazon warrior woman who, um, Timius, who is, uh, I guess he's Arthur's armor bearer, becomes besotted with, mm -hmm. and he lives with her, and she... Um, she uh, nurses him back to help back to health after he's been injured, and he becomes he falls deeply in love with Belle Phoebe, but is never able to win her because she is an impenetrable female warrior, which is fascinating. While Amaret, on the other hand, is um, is engaged. Don't take to be mine, Carla. To, don't take mine. I won't. I won't. <laughs> is engaged to be married to. Is this, Is it the? I bet I am going to. Um, is is engaged to be married to Scudamore? Right. Right. Scudamore. Right. Scudamore. Uh, yeah, and, and shield of love is captured at the wedding, which is just fantastic. How she was captured at the wedding by Buserain and taken to his castle, and he um, he he begins to torture her with some sort of I don't know lust, love. I don't know allegorically speaking what exactly he's doing, but but he is able to um, pull her heart out and write on it with <laughs> write on it. It's it's a fascinating piece, and that's where Britomart comes in and saves Amaret and uh, reunites she and Scudamore. And Scudamore and Amaret actually turn into at the end the alternate ending to book three turn into a hermaphrodite, where you cannot tell whether they are man, woman, or both. They are so combined. Well, I want to talk about something from that same book, which is why I was worried that Carla would I scoop thought, it. Yeah, no, I, I was trying to decide if it was going to be the hermaphrodite or the other. I am going to talk about the salvage man, which is Spencer's way of saying savage man, but I like to think of it as uh, Fred Sanford. <laughs> the salvage man kidnaps the salvage man kidnaps Amaret, who uh, is apparently good for nothing but getting kidnapped. Locks her, locks her in a cave and proceeds to masturbate vigorously. <laughs> my, um, you big my, dummy. <laughs> my, uh, my, my fairy queen paper is all about this. I argue that in fact he is not a rapist. He merely enjoys looking at pornography, and that uh, men can no longer save her because uh, what happens is Arthur's squire goes to save Amaret from the salvage man and ends up cutting her instead because. Uh, because pornography ends up ensnaring all the men in the uh, 
in the vicinity, and it ends up being Belphoebe who has to save her. But the salvage man section in book three is my favorite part of the Fairy Queen. Well, we're just about done with our discussion, um, but I, I did want to end with something that reaches out a little more to the listeners. The Fairy Queen is, to understate the case quite a bit, a very, very difficult book for the layman to read. I, uh, I'm including myself in that category because I'm really not used to reading Elizabethan language, let alone Elizabethan language that masks itself as Middle English as Spencer's Badly. writing does. So I want you guys to tell me why our listeners should even bother reading The Fairy Queen, and uh, if you have any tips as to how they should go about doing that, that would be great too. Carla, let's start with you. Well, as you've just slammed the language, I would say that the language, the poetry maybe more than the language, is enough of a reason to read The Fairy Queen. <laughs> I think it's, it's good to be reminded that we as humans once had the mental attention and capacity and energy to write a poem of this length and complexity. Or um, to read it. Yeah, to re- exactly, to read it. It's a mental exercise to read it. And once you've become accustomed to it, though, you start to get sort of just drawn into how beautiful it is. And to me, I mean, it's not saying anything new to say that language used in as poetry is an art form. That's not saying anything new. But you can almost visualize him playing with the words and trying to arrange and rearrange. And there becomes this visual beauty aside from just the the, the audible <laughs> beauty of it mm. that I think is, is fascinating. It's a beautiful thing. And I, I think that that as humans, we sort of crave that kind of beauty and satisfaction. That's not just a surface, a surface beauty, but it's encompassed and it's deep. Um, and I think it's, it's something about the way that he uses language. And I, I would say this of, of both Milton and, and Shakespeare as well, but there's something about it that's both tangibly and intangibly. There's meaning in it, both tangibly and intangibly and beauty in the same way. So to me, once you've accustomed yourself to your, your, mind and your to, to hearing this kind of language and to becoming immersed in it it's it's absolutely beautiful you can get lost in it so i think that that is enough of a reason to read it um practically speaking from my perspective um i was raised in a very conservative home in which i was taught that the moralistic religious backlash of the 70s and 80s was the timeless truth and so i think studying works like the fairy queen and understanding the sort of historical nature of where modern belief systems came from is really freeing for me and and it matters and i think that um once i started reading some of these older pieces and understood that these things were once debated before they settled into some sort of a a settled um settled state was really good for me um, to understand that, that, that there wasn't a timeless quality to sort of the, the time that I was brought up in and what I was taught. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Nathan? First a tip, then a reason. The tip, uh, the first time I read John Milbank, I had to be in a, an upper division seminar in seminary. Uh, it took a room full of people to read John Milbank's theological prose. Uh, when I tried to read Martin Heidegger, uh, Michael and I had to help each other through that because neither of us was adequate to the text. Likewise, Spencer is one of those texts that rewards reading with. Uh, get together a group of people to read together uh, so that you can help each other out through the difficult passages because this is an immensely rewarding text, uh, but it's not easy and it's always better to do with help. Now, why should you even bother to do that? The answer is that in our own pluralistic and confusing and tumultuous uh, and anxiety-ridden time, uh, this is the perfect sort of poem uh, to dig into. As, as soon as you think that you've defeated error, you find out that you're actually erring 
uh, as soon as you think that you mm. are defeating, you know, lawlessness, you find out that you you, you yourself have become lawless. Uh, as soon as you think you have triumphed in behalf of chastity, uh, you find yourself dismayed by the fact. This is our world. Mm. Spencer gives you an entryway into your own world to see things that you couldn't see before. It's well worth the read. Absolutely. David? Um, well, it, it, it's kind of funny that, that you say read it, read it as a group, Nathan, um, because the, the advice of, of uh, C.S. Lewis, which he was somewhat influenced by growing up, is that he, he believed everyone's first encounter with the Fairy Queen should be of their mother reading, them, reading it to them as a child. Um, now, granted, that's how he first met it, and that's how he fell in love with it. <laughs> also, he had some mother issues. Well, I'm not going to pursue that. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I, I, I do think that it's, it's worth reading, um, for the stories there, there are exciting, amazing stories. Um, there are robots, there are monsters in here that, I mean, okay. When, when the snake woman error dies, her babies like eat her corpse and then swell up and explode. I mean, there's all kinds of things that if you're, you know, an 11 year old boy, this is the best thing ever. Um, but you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a story that's, it, it tells stories that are frankly just awesome. Um, but deeper than that, because I do want to go a little bit deeper than, Hey, exploding error babies. Um, <laughs> Nothing like an exploding I, I error. Refer- <laughs> yeah. My, my like own the one I made on the 4th of made. July. <laughs> we don't need to yeah. <laughs> uh, my, um My own students were that they, they were so they, they, they were enthralled by the fight with error. Um, but uh, it, this reminds me of an essay uh, by uh, G.K. Chesterton in which what he doesn't? explained – <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, in which he, he says that white is a color too, and that very often in modern society we are apt to think of virtue and the pursuit of virtue as a colorless endeavor that drains us of – that drains our life of, of its human interest. But uh, I, I think Spencer is, is a good way to, to say that no, why – the pursuit of virtue is not a, a colorless – dull, innervating experience, but, but it is an adventure in which you were constantly in, in a battle, um, against enemies, uh, external, but even more, more importantly against enemies internal. And, uh, I, I, th- I think that's something that Spencer helps to capture, um, sometimes in ways that even Bunyan doesn't. Just, that, just to complicate that though, right? I mean, I don't know, the pursuit of virtue as Spencer creates it is is a very messy thing it's it's not oh yeah you know, I mean, it's not like and and i don't know virtue just seems like such a such an ambiguous sort of goal <laughs> i know that sounds crazy but it does and i think that <laughs> chesterton's idea that 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 white is a color too you know and that that the pursuit of that can lead is is an interesting thing yes it's interesting because it gets muddled with all kinds of other colors does that make sense? It's interesting mm-hmm. because the pursuit the pursuit of virtue is never is never a, a pretty path. In fact, if you think you've had a pretty path and you've found a virtue, it's like Nathan was just talking about. The minute you think you've, yeah. you've killed error, you, you, you err. think you so killed error, but then you, you find out you're. Yeah. You, so I mean, I guess that 
that you find out you're dating her. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, you know. So I mean, I think that Spencer, that that's part of what is what is done, what is good about this poem. Part of what makes it uh, an enticing read is that it's not it's not that clean. Here's here's the path from here to there. It's it's when you try to get from here to there. This is what what will what you can encounter, you know, and, and by right. the way, as far as Spencer writes it, you're not going to get there. There isn't a right. there. <laughs> you know what I'm paraphr- saying? To paraphrase, to paraphrase Ecclesiastes badly, he has set eternity upon our hearts, but then he made sure we couldn't get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, uh, I brought up Moby Dick earlier. I'm going to bring it up again because you should read the fairy queen for the same reason you should read Moby Dick, which is there's nothing ever written. That's anything like it. It's a it's a big sprawling confusing mess and you just have to let it slap you around a little bit. Uh, and and th- that's why that's why you should read the Fairy Queen because it is um it is it is triumphantly strange and 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 triumphantly unique and uh you just have to let it have its way with you same as Moby Dick. Well, that's it for uh, episode 34 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We thank you for listening. Carla, we thank you for coming on. I hope we weren't... Uh... Yes, thank you, Carla. Thank you, guys. Yes, indeed. Uh, we won't have a show next week because we would have to record it over Thanksgiving week, and that won't happen. But when we come back, we will finally com- complete our music trilogy uh, with our episode on Christian rock. In the meantime... This is Michael Farmer saying for Nathan Gilmore, for David Grubbs, and for Carla Ewart, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Do it for brothers.